0: CLS is The Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market clamor to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed.
1: CLS is The Weighing Machine is inspired by two ideas. The first is the classic investing truism attributed to Benjamin Graham, that the stock market is a voting machine in the short run and a weighing machine in the long run. In other words, Emotion drives short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations drive returns over time. The second idea is CLS's investment methodology of risk budgeting. Represented by the scales, risk budgeting measures and manages risk to suit the needs of each investor. Welcome to CLS's The Weighing Machine. We hope you enjoy it, and as always, please let us know what you think.
0: On the podcast today, we'll run through your top questions. Everything from our market predictions and the likelihood of a recession to the status of Europe and our best investment idea.
1: We also have big news. We're rolling out three new CLS investment themes. We'll discuss each theme and how they reflect our current thinking with our guest, Deputy Chief Investment Officer Joe Smith. Plus, my interview is with Mike Maroney, Chief Investment Strategist and Managing Director at State Street Global Advisors. Welcome to CLS is the Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman.
0: And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look back at the markets. We're at the half-year point. How are we doing?
1: Well, we just finished June. And so we can talk about the month, quarter, year. All the numbers are great. June was fantastic. I mean, for the US market, it was the best June for the S&P 500 since the 50s. And uh, so it was a really great month. And and really, all asset classes are participating. It really saved the quarter. I mean, coming into June, we did have a loss for the quarter. So uh, it was definitely a nice push at the end. It should be noted, again, all asset classes are doing well, including the bond market, and the bond market has a nice return this year and also over the last year as well. Um, so it's been a great year to be in uh, uh, to be an investor. Uh, global portfolios, international markets have lagged a little bit, but still, if you're a global portfolio, you're still having a great year. Right.
0: Okay, so in your monthly review, um, you address some top questions from investors. Let's run through some of those. And Mm -hmm. as we do, we might kind of veer off into some other places because those questions bring up other topics we've written about recently. So. Bear with me. Here we go. First question, what do we expect from the stock market for the remainder of the year?
1: So yeah, in the written commentary, I did go through like 10 questions. It was, I mean, it was kind of an easy way to write something, but there are questions I'm getting from people, so I thought it made sense. But in terms of stock market expectations, I mean, really, we like to think long term. So at minimum, we're trying to think at least a year out. And when we publish our official expectations, those are really for like the next 10 years. But nonetheless, taking the bait on what to expect for the last Six months of the year. I mean, first of all, I mean, just investors should expect more price volatility. Um, you know, there's just a lot of catalysts why we should see the market move around a little bit more. And just remember that volatility is irrational in the sense that the stock market is considerably more volatile than actually corporate earnings. And corporate earnings are substantially more volatile than, than GDP or the overall economy. So when you can see those numbers, it's, uh, it's really striking how much more volatile the stock market is. But remember the volatility. As scary as it can be, uh, it does create investment opportunities. And for the long-term investor, it's just weather, weather the storm and you know alter the portfolio accordingly in terms of taking advantage of those opportunities. In terms of returns, we do expect the stock market Most likely, of course, we don't know for sure what's going to happen, but most likely the stock market's going to generate more gains on top of already above-average gains for the year. I mean, the market typically trends upward. It usually does well in the last quarter of the year. It's the third year of the presidential cycle. And really in June, uh, despite the fact the market took off, investor sentiment's been pretty negative. And when investor sentiment is negative, that actually suggests above-average gains in the months ahead, including over the next six-month time frame. I do like to mention to investors, it seems like whenever I talk to investors, everybody's concerned about a big correction or a meltdown in the market. And of course, that could happen. It's, it's, it's long overdue. But you know what? I think the chances are even greater for a melt-up, where the prices sort of freak out going higher instead mm-hmm. of lower. So investors should even think that's a possibility as well.
0: Okay, so how about the bond market? What do we expect from bonds? Well,
1: the bond market has been amazing, uh, because it always seems like everybody hates it. And then when interest rates drop, which means bond prices go up, then all of a sudden investors love it. And investors now seem to love the bond market, despite the fact that it's Overvalued. I can kind of feel the decline in yields has been really remarkable, and it really feels like an overreaction. I did see a presentation last week at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I did get to see a former member of uh, uh, the European Central Bank, a very experienced central banker talk. It was fascinating, um, but one thing he pointed out which I think kind of um, suggests what may happen to short-term and long-term rates, is that one thing he noted is that economic growth is now above what economists like to refer to as potential GDP, and the output gap uh, used to be negative, and it's now closed. And in fact, now it would suggest the market or the economy could be overheating. Uh, We've seen similar data from the unemployment rate, the labor market, for the last year. So unlike any other situation we've seen over the last 10 years, Kind of that classic economic theory suggests that inflationary pressure should start to appear, and if that does happen, that would suggest higher rates, not only for short-term interest rates, but also for long-term rates. In addition to that, uh, investor sentiment, as I already mentioned, for bonds is extremely bullish, and that is about the only sentiment environment where the bond market generates negative forward returns um, in the coming months. So you put that all together, I would expect interest rates to rise from here to the end of the year.
0: Okay, well, let's bring in our guest, Deputy Chief Investment Officer Joe Smith, who's calling in from New York. Joe, good to have you on the show.
1: Robin, it's great
2: to be here.
0: So, okay, you wrote about the current bond market in your weekly three from a couple of weeks back, specifically the search for yield in a low-rate environment. So what is CLS doing to help investors searching for yield?
2: Yeah, so, um, you know, relative to kind of what I wrote about and, you know, kind of touches upon, you know, what Rusty just talked about. Um Obviously, the, the Federal Reserve has certainly been um, debating a, quite a bit more in terms of, kind of what to do with short-term interest rates, and you know, I think you know, a lot of that has been both in the way of just you know pressures, in the way of um, what what we're seeing from the bond market, as well as just factoring in you know some of the uncertainty that may be out there. Um, that now ne- that doesn't necessarily mean that um, interest rates are going to move lower, but um, I think there's certainly more discussion amongst the um, FOMC or, or, or the committee that oversees uh, Fed policy in terms of kind of where we're going to go from rates from here. Um, now, relative towards that, though, I think kind of what's important for our advisors that we work with to keep in mind is that um, at CLS, we do offer a number of more income-focused um, type of strategies that really are, are geared for helping um, their clients navigate um, you know, this type of um, yield, yield environment, especially for those who... Um, certainly uh, would like to have some additional benefits in terms of um, income in their portfolios. And, you know, when I'd like to think about these strategies, our first one being our managed income ETF strategy. That's really more so for folks who are looking for a diversified, um, balanced um, portfolio where they're sourcing um, yield from both stocks as well as fixed income. And, you know, I think kind of what people should keep in mind is the way that we go about managing um, around that yield will still be within the context of the CLS risk budgeting methodology, um, and keeping risk proportional to what is um, appropriate for the, the client's um, needs and expectations. Um, the second strategy, though, which we launched a couple of years ago, um, is also a bit more um, geared towards you know explicitly targeting um, yield in the portfolio. Called our active income X strategy. And I think uh, what's you know, clearly important with that strategy, um, as advisors and, and clients uh, think about utilizing that in their own portfolios, is that it's really um, intended to you know, target a, a yield orientation first, um, but still be highly risk-aware in terms of kind of how much risk and what types of risk that we're taking at CLS in order to um, deliver on, on that income promise. And so, you know, I think you know what people should just um, you know take as a, you know, have as a key takeaway relative to what that is. And you know, we do offer a number of solutions that folks um, do want to have conversations with any one of us on the portfolio management team on ways that they can enhance um, the income in their clients' portfolios. And that you know, at the same time, uh, we will continue to evaluate those strategies and manage them appropriately as we see the overall um, interest rate environment evolve.
0: Okay, cool. Let's stay with you for a minute, Joe. You also wrote about value stocks, which have been struggling lately. Um, You attended the Ben Graham Annual Conference on Value Investing in New York recently, and there was a predominant narrative. Basically, value investing has been stretched thin. So is it time for a snapback?
2: Um, You know, I think surprisingly, you know, relative to that conversation, I probably would say that there's a greater chance for it, um, especially given all the narratives we've heard over the last couple of years in the way of growth stocks. Um, you know, I, I think what was interesting to hear, especially from you know a lot of investors that have been known as um, being really value-oriented investors over the years, including um, Ted Aronson over at ADL Partners, is that despite the underperformance, um, this most recent period probably hasn't actually been the worst we've seen for um, value in relation to growth stocks. Um, if you go back and just look at the data uh, from you know, on a rolling ten-year basis, starting in 1988 um, through of May of this year. Uh, What you'll see is that, you know, the worst period in terms of kind of how much value has underperformed growth stocks was actually back in the um, late 90s, early 2000s, um, just at the the height of the tech bubble. Uh, We saw a case where, you know, by that point, value stocks underperformed by about 5.4% per year. Um, And then clearly, you know, as we moved into the early 2000s, we did see an initial snapback. Um, when you compare it relative towards kind of where we are at this point in the cycle, um, value has lagged growth by about three percent per year over the last ten years or so. Um, but you know, I think you know for what many investors talked about at that conference, and what we're also talking about internally, is that there are a number of things that um, you know people should be looking for on the horizon that would certainly warrant for value stocks to um, you know regain their you know, leadership position going forward. Um, some of those things will be focused around a reversion to um, fundamentals. So you know, clearly investors taking the time to better understand um, you know, what's the prospects be, behind a lot of the companies that they're purchasing out there today and whether or not they can sustain um, their growth levels out there. I think the second will really just be, you know, to Rusty's point again, um, you know, although you know, people have probably had a, a fairly negative sentiment around the stock market and I, I think indirectly as well around um, global growth, that we could see value stocks um, leading the charge in the event that um, global growth does reaccelerate um, in the second half of this year and then I think you know again the the third bit that's going to be an important indicator or you know opportunity for value stocks to you know certainly um, gain some ground again will really just be in terms of if we do see higher amounts of volatility um, volatility naturally just creates opportunities um, for you know, value managers, including us, um, to buy mispriced assets. And so, you know, just given kind of where we are, of how suppressed risk has been out there, um, that certainly creates an, another case for value stocks um, to um, perform in the future.
0: Well, that brings us to another top investor question. Rusty, what is our best investment idea?
1: Well, first of all, just listening to Joe, isn't that dude smart? He's on vacation right now, <laughs> I too. I think about that a lot. Way yeah. to go, Joe. Hey, uh, so by the way, uh, he's in the state of Washington this week. What are you oh, doing he's for not the holiday? calling in from New York. He's, he's not calling, calling in from, from New York. He's on the other coast right now. Right. So what are you up to, Joe?
2: You know, just uh, getting ready for our annual Fourth of July barbecue with family.
1: So. Yeah. Nice. That's yeah. awesome. All right. Well, I guess I'll get back on track and answer your question, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> Talking so, uh, about the best investment idea. Yeah, the Go best on. investment idea. You know, it's it's amazing how often you get this question, and for good reason, because a lot of people think their portfolios are all always in great shape, and they want the top idea. And what we're going to talk about is something we talk about all the time, and that is uh, emerging market value stocks. We love emerging markets. We love value. You're putting them together and you get emerging market value stocks, we think that this is one asset class that really should offer above average returns relative to long-term averages over the next five to ten years. There's almost no other large uh, equity asset class segments that offers that sort of potential. And the number I like to mention is that emerging market value stocks have basically the same growth as the S&P 500, but valuations are 50 to 67% lower. Now, that's something on sale.
0: Right, pretty significant. Okay, so we still see a lot of potential in emerging markets. Uh, What's our view on Europe
1: lately? You know, Europe is a very common question. You know, it's kind of interesting. It's very regional. I mean, we have advisors all over the country, and some advisors in some regions, particularly like in the southeast, they just really don't like Europe in portfolios. (laughs) And uh, we are underweight Europe relative to our benchmarks in Europe. Obviously, for a lot of the concerns that people cite, uh, Europe is still a mess, uh, rising nationalism, uh, the hard Brexit potential, unsustainable euro currency. There's just a lot of issues. Again, we are underweight. But one thing I'd like to mention is that There are values to take advantage of. And if prices sink further, we'll likely be buying Europe. I mean, so we are looking at it. We recognize it's a mess. But again, that's where you usually find the bargains.
0: Okay, so one more question before we get to another important topic. Uh, We have touched on this, but let's try to get a definitive answer because it is probably something that's on a lot of people's minds. Are we nervous about a recession being imminent?
1: Well, I would say that um, usually the market goes up. I mean, the economy goes up, so it's like the market. So usually the smart bet is just to think, no, we're not going to have a recession. That said, we think the probabilities are higher for a recession than normal. And one big reason is, you could say there's a lot of different reasons. You can look at a lot of different economic data. But one thing is just looking at interest rates themselves and looking at different maturities of interest rates. And what you do when you look at something like that, it's called the yield curve. And the natural, normal state of the yield curve is that longer-term bonds have higher yields, higher interest rates than shorter-term bonds. And that makes sense, because it's riskier to hold a bond for a longer time period. So you need to get a higher interest rate to pay for that risk. But sometimes, you'll see long-term interest rates drop below short-term interest rates, and this is called an inverted yield curve. And usually, this means that the bond market is expecting or reacting to data that suggests that we're going to have an economic slowdown, if not a recession. Well, we've had that recently, and uh, it is interesting to note that the last three times the yield curve has inverted over the last almost 40 years It did precede recessions. Now, it wasn't immediate. It was usually still months down the road. Uh, But it is, therefore, something we are watching closely. And it is also a significant reason behind one of our new CLS investment themes.
0: All right. Well, good segue. That brings us to it. This is a pretty big announcement because we don't update our themes very often. And it's important for our listeners to hear about this because our themes basically impact everything we do in portfolios. They're the common threads that we weave between everything, and they reflect how we build portfolios, how we build how we select securities, what we're thinking about the economy, and how we're positioning portfolios based on all of those views. So, without further ado, what are the new CLS
1: investment themes? All right, we'll see if there's a drum roll there. All right, I'm sure <laughs> Kevin can, can insert in. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nice drum roll. (laughs) Um, Okay, so three themes. The first theme is a big theme. It's actually kind of repackaging of the old theme. It is be active. And basically, that means is that investors should not be passive. And and that basically means, in terms of industry terminologies, if you're passive, that means you're trying to match a benchmark return. And if you're active, you're trying to be different than the benchmark in the attempt to have a higher risk-adjusted performance over time we think investors should be active moving forward. And the reason why is that we think there are opportunities in certain segments of the market right now. And just in general, we have a bias towards being active because the markets do rotate and uh, expected returns and risks do evolve over time. And we want to take advantage of those opportunities in the markets. So for instance, we've talked about it. Uh, emerging markets is at a, perhaps a multi-decade uh, uh, buying opportunity as our value stocks versus growth. Therefore, we are tilted the portfolios to those areas. In addition, it goes to a a primary point about how CLS thinks about portfolios in the sense that we are a risk budgeting shop. That means we manage portfolios to a target risk level, which means if we're going to beat the benchmarks over time, we just can't match the risk. Well, actually, we have to match the risk of the benchmark, but we we can't just buy the market. So what we have to do is we have to do it through security selection, and we have to buy exchange-traded funds or mutual funds or whatever it is that are just different than the market. And so when it comes to, like, our ETF, portfolios, for instance, we buy a lot of different securities, such as smart beta ETFs, which are basically rules-based ETFs, and actively managed ETFs, which again is a very small sliver of the overall ETF industry, but we actually have a pretty substantial portion of our portfolios in it. That's theme number one. Are you ready for theme number two? I'm ready. Go for (laughs) (laughs) it. The second theme is be resilient. And this is really kind of tying into what's going on in the U.S. economy and markets. We are now in the longest economic expansion in U.S. history. Uh, We are in one of the longest and strongest uh, stock bull markets. Again, a bull market is a move in the stock prices without a 20% pullback. Uh, Both of them are over 10 years now. And so therefore, we think we are now late cycle in both the economy and the markets. Now, it's like a baseball game. Just because it's the ninth inning, it doesn't mean it's it's not going to go extra innings. But nonetheless, we are in anticipating late cycle behavior because the stock market, U.S. market valuations for the stock market are high. Therefore, we are rotating our sector exposures to more non-cyclical sectors, and those would include such things as consumer staples and healthcare. People may be seeing that we've been buying that already, and we'll probably have an inclination to buy more. And it's probably notable for a CLS portfolio I've, again, been here for seven years. We've never had such a large portion of our portfolios in non-cyclical sectors, and so I don't know when the last time we had so much in the, in these. The second thing is the bond market. Interest rates are really low. We've already talked about it. So return potential is not as attractive as it is historically. We're still going to use bonds, of course, because there's no better way to diversify equity risk, but it also means we're being creative in how we diversify and manage risk in portfolios because that's job number one. And therefore, we will continue to use alternative investments and strategies, like merger arbitrage is a good example, and we'll use real assets. And real assets, really a couple different groups include commodities and like real estate investment trusts. So that's the second theme. You ready for number three? Number three. Let's hear it. <laughs> now, number three is be innovative. And basically the, the point behind being innovative is the future is incredibly bright for the economy and for the markets. And as for investors, I think we have a really bright future. Obviously there's going to be bumps in the road. That's just what markets do. But I think that even though we might have below average economic growth in the year or, year, or years ahead, Um, Economic growth moving forward is going to be fantastic, and there's going to be a lot of uh, new industries that will help transform our lives, enhance our lives, and we can take advantage of that as investors, and it could be in sectors such as healthcare or financials or energy. And so we are investing in a lot of these newer ETFs that are just coming out. The ETF industry has really responded to take advantage of some of these, and therefore we're going to try to be in the leading edge and using some of these ETFs as well. One other thing gets a little wonky here, but what I think is really cool is that about some of these be innovative ETFs is that they are quirky. And their, kind of, their their risk profile, while they might be a little more volatile than the overall market on average on a standalone basis, they just move to a different rhythm. And therefore, they actually diversify portfolios better than your typical equity portfolios. So CLS being a risk budgeting shop, risk management shop, we think it's kind of cool not only for its return potential, but its ability to manage risk.
0: Be innovative is pretty cool. Um, and so one of those areas of innovation is artificial intelligence, AI. And, Joe, you wrote about the opportunities in this emerging technology. What should we be looking out for in AI?
2: Well, I mean, that's a great question. And, you know, I think, again, uh, just to kind of reiterate on um, you know some of the points Rusty just made, you know, I think what's really exciting about this new theme is that it's really all about investing in the future, investing in companies that are not only just simply disruptive, but are really changing the way we live, the way we, um, you know, Consume the way we just go about our daily lives, and I think you know the big one of the biggest pieces of that will be our artificial artificial intelligence. And you know, some of the questions I always get from whether it's you know family or friends or even from clients is really kind of you know what is AI? Why should I care? What's the big deal? And I think you know, without kind of boring you with all the you know math and all the programming that's behind it, um, I always like to think about it as really how do we take information and really inform better decisions um, through a similar process towards kind of how the human brain works, um, but to do that in the context of computers and, and other types of algorithms. And so, you know, what's really going to be important with, you know, things like AI um, as we go forward? You know, I think about it as everything from the way that the healthcare industry, especially in the way of pharmaceutical companies, are using artificial in- intelligence to identify new leading potential drugs that can help solve um, some of the uh, major issues that we still have out there in the healthcare space um, to things around cybersecurity. And how do we think about uh, the ability to react to um, better cybersecurity threats in a more timely basis? And then also even when you think about the financial services industry, um, we are um, certainly getting to a place where the ability to utilize um, artificial intelligence and uh, collaboration with, you know, human intelligence um, to, you know, better, you know, select whether it's securities and portfolios, to manage uh, risk in portfolios, and even, you know, when you think about it from a trading standpoint, really automate uh, what happens with um, buying and selling the securities in the in the marketplace. And so, you know, just again, just to reiterate to Rusty's point, um, you know, we do believe that um, this will be an important um, you know series of investments that we make um, on behalf of our clients and portfolios, and certainly will give uh, our clients the ability to take advantage of these new opportunities that are going to be generational in terms of reshaping our overall economy.
0: Yeah, exciting stuff. Um, So, okay, finally, let's talk about something that's Less exciting. (laughs) Politics. Um, So, okay, campaign season has already begun. We have another 16 months of debates, political ads, partisan posturing to get through. Um, Gio Zelaya, who's the client portfolio manager here, wrote about the impact of political party on the stock market um, in a section of the monthly review. Should we be rooting for a specific party or candidate to help us get the best returns?
1: Well, in short, the answer is no. Right. And... I mean, really, from a statistical standpoint, there's just not enough data points. And also, from a statistical standpoint, it really depends on starting points. So, uh, when one president gets elected, valuations might be low. When when another president gets elected, valuations might be high. So, and not only that, it's just uh, there's so many variables that go into the stock market. So. Um, but nonetheless, people always want to like drill these numbers down. And what Geo did is he actually he did a ton of research on this. And he said he's like working on it Sunday. and Next thing you know, he's like up to like I don't know, like two o'clock in the morning writing this. But uh, but he did come across some good studies. And what was really cool is that he didn't just look at the U.S. experience; he looked at the global experience. And so it wasn't like if you break it down, conservative was better or liberal was better. It was just a mixed bag, is what it was. And I find it really fascinating because a lot of investors make very significant decisions based off politics, and it's almost usually uh, based off fear, and um, they usually get hurt. I mean, I just have not, I mean, I have a story that I like to to talk about a lot of times when I'm on the road. And in short, it just means if you have a strong political bias, you're probably going to negatively impact your portfolio, probably Mm -hmm. over time.
0: Okay. Well, that's it. That is going to do it for this portion of the podcast. Joe, thanks for being on the show today.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks, Joe.
0: And next up is Rusty's Q&A, and today he talks to Mike Aroni, who's the Chief Investment Strategist and Managing Director at State Street Global Advisors. What'd you guys talk
1: about? So, this is a great interview. Uh, To talk about Mike, he is, again, he is, as you said, Chief Investment Strategist and Managing Director at State Street Global Advisors. That's the Spider ETFs, kind of the granddaddies of the ETF industry. Uh, Mike is an accomplished speaker. He actually has a great article that he puts out all the time called Uncommon Sense. And he's really talking about the Be Innovative theme, something that he talked about to our advisors at one of our big events we have every year at CLS for um, for clients, potential clients, called Accelerate, which we have around the College World Series. So, again, it's a great interview. It's a basically more of an educational, and informative interview about innovative in some of the industries. And let's take a listen. All right. All right, well, today's guest on CLS is The Weighing Machine is one of our speakers from the CLS Accelerate meeting and an industry expert on so many things, and it's Mike Arrone, Chief Investment Strategist and Managing Director at State Street Global Advisors, of course the home of Spider ETFs. Mike, welcome to The Weighing Machine.
3: Rusty, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, we're going to talk about a lot of new and exciting developments going on in the economy, but first of all, just introduce yourself and your background.
3: Sure. My name is Mike Aroni. I'm the Chief Investment Strategist for State Street Global Advisors Spider Exchange Traded Fund business in the U.S. I've been with State Street Global Advisors for 22 years, and uh, I work with folks like Rusty in thinking about how you build portfolios on behalf of clients and how you might use exchange-traded funds to do that efficiently.
1: First of all, 22 years. How does anybody do that in the investment industry, particularly in Boston? How did you do that?
3: So I think there's a, as a little formula to it. Uh, I think that most studies would indicate folks stick with their employer if they feel like their work is challenging. And I've gotten to do some really fun things, including the role that I'm currently in, but I got to live in London for a time. So it's challenging, stimulating intellectually. Uh, they feel like they have a fair amount of autonomy is the second thing. So they have the freedom to really push themselves and think about things and, and do their job. And I've always felt that way. And lastly, they feel rewarded for it, Rusty. Now, this doesn't always just mean um, compensation, monetary compensation, but rather kind of the satisfaction from doing a good job. Now, don't get me wrong. We all like monetary compensation, but it is a little bit broader than that as well. So the simple thing is, is I've always had those three things at State Street, So I haven't really found a a reason to
1: change. Dang, very well said. I loved it. All right, so uh, the topic today is really referring to one of our new investment themes at CLS, which we're calling Be Innovative, and it's really kind of touching upon some of the new exciting and innovative industries that are kind of transforming our lives and enhancing our lives. It isn't just about uh, making us better as consumers uh, and having us live longer and higher quality lives, but really the focus is on investing. And I think it's a really exciting time for investors as well. But there's a lot of new phrases. And so I want to have you define a couple of the terms, at least how you would define them. And the first one is a very common phrase referring to kind of this collection of industries called the fourth industrial revolution. How do you define that?
3: Well, if you think about it, there's been exponential advances in technology. And it's really reshaping the way we think about traditional sectors and industries and creating a whole bunch of new ones. And if you think about it, advancements in processing power, nanotechnology, artificial intelligence, robotics, automation, is really driving the innovation in the new economy, and it's really affecting every facet of our life. So whether it's kind of where we live, how we travel, uh, security, those types of things, uh, it's always kind of that important element. So I think of the fourth industrial revolution is representing that exponential growth in these new areas and kind of the intersection between the physical world, the biological world, and the digital world.
1: Yeah, you know when you say that, I mean, I think some people probably would find it kind of scary. But really, I think, obviously, as um, you know, as society continues to evolve, and things are just going to get better. And again, there's a lot of opportunities there. Well, before I talk about some of these industries, let's hit another phrase, which is we actually talked about this earlier in the podcast with our deputy CIO Joe Smith. But it's the whole term about artificial intelligence. How how does this impacting our lives? What is it, and how is it impacting our lives?
3: Well, you think about artificial intelligence in terms of kind of some of the things that we see, uh, kind of teaching a, a, a technology to do things that a human can do, uh, and do it efficiently. From that standpoint, so things that are automated tasks, perhaps in, in manufacturing, uh, clerical work, those types of things. For example, some estimates suggest that a tremendous amount of the legal work kind of during discovery that's done by a lot of paralegals and things, reviewing thousands upon thousands of documents and case studies, can actually be done to look for, look for a few key words and key phrases through artificial intelligence and help that make that a much more efficient process. So I think of it as an example like that. So simply trying to take a task that a human can do but have uh, technology or a computer be able to do it with a little more efficiency.
1: Yeah. Hey, let's use an example, and actually this is going to be an example you're going to love because it relates to some of the, the ETFs from State Street Global Advisors, but artificial intelligence is used basically in helping construct some portfolios, particularly the Show ETFs. Describe how artificial intelligence is used there.
3: So this is interesting. We partnered with Kensho Technologies, and it's, a, it's simply a technology company. For those that curiously uh, keep on CNBC on occasion, they might say every once in a while, like an interesting factoid or stat brought to you by our partners at Kensho. And essentially, they're using artificial intelligence, machine learning, natural language processing to identify companies within industries, uh, redefined industries that are kind of on the cutting edge of innovation or uh, disruption in, in some of these areas in terms of that we talked about, uh, artificial intelligence, hyperconnectivity, connectivity So let's take an example. Uh, smart mobility is a kind of a new and budding industry. So they're essentially looking through regulatory filings because there's a certain structure to those filings. Ken shows using artificial intelligence natural language processing, machine learning, to basically identify both new companies and traditional companies that are on the cutting edge of smart mobility, autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles. So, Rusty, it could be anything from General Motors to NVIDIA that puts a lot of the computer chips in so many of these cars. Our cars are like computers these days. To Tesla, uh, to uh, Google, for example, who's got a big effort in autonomous vehicle research, for example. So it's looking at their regulatory filings, identifying those companies using advanced technology uh, to put them into a category like smart mobility.
1: That's great. All right, so one more definition. I think it goes back to a couple of words you've mentioned a few times. But first of all, just the general concept of innovation and disruption. I'm just going to give you my take on it, and then you can just weigh in on it. But I feel like it's it's really kind of the flip side of the same coin. I think on one hand, a lot of the, you say disruption. I think to a lot of investors, as they're sitting there listening to it, it's not really a happy word. Things are changing. But innovation is a more kind of a positive slant on it. Basically, things are changing for the better. Things are getting better. And I just think in general, talking to investors, it's really innovation is sort of the the key word to emphasize because things are getting better. Would you change any of those definitions that I just used?
3: I don't know if I would change any of them. What I think of is is that um, the economy is growing overall at a bit of a slower rate. Um, it was hard for the economy to continue to advance uh, by 4% continuously. And it's natural, given kind of the demographics and the debt and those types of things that not only the U.S. economy, but the global economy has, that it would slow a little bit. Now, from my perspective as an investor, where I want to look towards in this environment are areas that have incredible growth. Both from a kind of a future growth perspective and in terms of the opportunity, but as well as those that are able to kind of be on the cutting edge of the future, as well as those that are able to grow revenues and profits at this point. And in this environment, you know, where we're looking at things on robotics, kind of how we, it changes how we do our jobs, smart buildings, where we live, how we travel through autonomous vehicles and such, clean power, for example, uh, cybersecurity, all these things are kind of the future. I mean, I think of it just anyone who's wearing an Apple Watch, a Fitbit, what have you, you can essentially get a reading on your heart rate, your high blood pressure, um, all how many steps you took, and a health assessment. That's probably as effective, maybe not as effective, but it's like going to the doctor. And you have the integration between your biological, physical, and the technology to do that. I think that's just an incredible uh, achievement in terms of where we can take some of these uh, industries going forward.
1: All right, one more tangent question here. So it's three o'clock in the afternoon. Two o'clock for me. I'm at eight thousand steps. How many do you have?
3: I have about. Uh, I did a. I did a little Peloton bike today. Talk about oh. the integration of technology, <laughs> yeah. right? Integration yeah. of interaction with technology in the physical world. So, I did a 30-minute uh, class today with a little country music myself. So, I'm not sure. It was about eight and a half miles
1: Nice biking. Nice. <laughs> That's great. You
3: almost got me there, Rusty. You, you, <laughs> toss, you, you threw me a curve on, on that one.
1: All right. So, let's get back to some of the industries that are kind of shaking things up. And I think, again, for the betterment of, for the world and for investors. And the first one is clean energy. What is that and how is that impacting our lives?
3: Well, if you think about uh, climate change, the world continues to you know, think of kind of repurpose and refinance fossil fuels, and they're exploring more and more ways to think about uh, clean energy. It's on the forefront from a political perspective, and we've made significant progress over the last few years to improve the efficiency, reduce the cost of clean power technology, uh, thinking about solar power, wind. Uh, hydroelectric, geothermal sources, for example, and renewable energy. Um, so it's expected that a lot of the, the capital spent on clean energy projects, about 75% of the global power new capacity uh, will be from clean energy by 2050. And so, for example, a real-life example is a company, Xylem, X-Y-L-E-M, And what it's doing is it does a lot of research in terms of um, water meters and things. And what it can do is it it tests pressurizing in the pipe. And what it can tell is when that pressurization goes down, it can detect a leak in advance. So just imagine the amount of money and waste uh, and damage that something like that can avoid by detecting a leak through the pressurized sensor of technology in terms of on those kind of water meter dispensaries and distribution networks. It's amazing uh, and can be a a real um, effective change agent. So that's an example of a company within that framework.
1: Cool. All right, so the fourth industrial revolution, how is it impacting a sector that we're both in, financial services and fintech?
3: Well, I think what what you're seeing there is... um, the end investor has never had it so good in so many ways in that they can get a diversified portfolio at a reasonable cost with tax efficiency, um, with great transparency, uh, the ability to, to trade um, the securities in that portfolio have never been lower, those types of things. And so technology has been at the root of that and has allowed for the end investor to access kind of cutting edge portfolio construction techniques that uh, many sophisticated investors and institutions have been using uh, at a reasonable price and with tax efficiency for the end, in, end user. Uh, so, it's kind of the democratization, if you will, uh, of the financial services industry.
1: Yeah. Again, I think these are ideas that, again, are really going to help consumers and again, there will be opportunities for investors. Alright, how about the impact of innovation on the healthcare industry?
3: Well, it's interesting. I think there are some studies to suggest that healthcare is amongst the most wasteful of, in, of industries in terms of how much kind of capital and money it gets wasted uh, from that standpoint. So, as a result, it is uh, ripe for technology and artificial intelligence and some of the automation here to help. Get rid of those costs, and by some estimates, we could wipe out nearly 140 billion dollars of inefficient costs. You uh, know, or said differently, get cost savings of 140 billion dollars through some of the new economy industries that we're seeing. Not to mention, that's just kind of the kind of attacking some of the inefficiencies within the healthcare system. Never mind the cutting-edge research on the forefront of trying to identify. Um, kind of cures for awful diseases like cancer, or even kind of some of the preventative medicines uh, that are ongoing to either prolong life uh, or prevent some of these diseases. So technology, in terms of some of this cutting-edge technology, has been used across, particularly on the processing power front as it relates to new research in the drug area.
1: Yep. All right, one industry that I think a lot of investors already know about, because it's pretty easy to understand, is cybersecurity. Uh, describe that a little bit and sort of the impact on our lives for cybersecurity.
3: So, certainly um, the amount of uh, money that goes towards. So, what's happened is the government in the last several years has increased their budget for cybersecurity spending by 23% annually. So the government sees how important it is to protect, you know, our, our privacy, our identity, uh, certainly um, uh, kind of uh, military uh, secrets, you know, top classified information, those types of things. So um, given the news and the headlines, given some of the political challenges that we've seen, um, a tremendous amount of money is being spent to protect uh, both individuals and corporations Uh, Data and their privacy from that standpoint, and it's growing at at an exponential rate. And even now, uh, more recently, Facebook has come out to support the idea of protecting our privacy. It seems maybe uh, maybe a little too you know too late or a little ironic, but uh, even Facebook is now coming out to suggest. Uh, the importance of cybersecurity. So the, the spending continues to be exponential there.
1: Let's go back to a phrase here, because it pertains to one of the ETFs again from State Street, and that is the term intelligent structures. What does that mean?
3: So if you think about the buildings of the future, uh, they're going to... So what's happened now is it's going to take about $4.6 trillion in infrastructure spending just to bring America's infrastructure to a state of good repair by 2025. That's what some estimates suggest. And so if you think about it, beyond traditional roads and bridges and tunnels, tomorrow's infrastructure is going to extend to a lot of things like smart bridges, intelligent power grids, intelligent water, similar to the kind of Xylem story I told before. So it's using those types of um, those types of uh, technologies and building. Think about it. Many folks probably listening to this podcast have a Nest thermostat in their home, and through the power of their phone, they can either turn it up or down. The heat, the air conditioning, control that. Not only that, but simultaneously you can get a, a signal from your, from your bank to suggest that your fuel bill is dual and pay that automatically. And it's kind of, again, this intersection of these different things that help um, – Kind of put forward this fourth industrial revolution idea but simply stated that the amount of infrastructure just to get back to good repair is in the trillions of dollars and much of that new infrastructure will be spent using smart bridges smart technology uh, uh smart transportation in terms of to reduce traffic and make things more uh efficient
1: Going forward, yeah. There are so many other industries we could talk about, but for the sake of time, I mean, first of all, listeners, how can they find more of Aroni?
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, they can go to uh, spiders.com, S B D R S dot com, forward slash Aroni, A R O N E, and uh, they'll be able to get all the research output that I, I put out, or even at spiders.com, more of the things that we put out broadly.
1: And that includes, of course, your Uncommon Sense article.
3: That's correct. Perfect. And I would also check out, for those interested in a lot of the content that we discussed today about the fourth industrial revolution, revolution to check out the Spider blog.
1: Perfect. Well, Mike, I do appreciate your time. To so any closing thoughts or comments?
3: I just think, as you rightly pointed out, when folks hear about disruption Or innovation Uh, a lot of times you can um, this can be interpreted as scary or unknowable and actually I think both you and I are incredibly excited about the opportunities that this provides investors to earn uh, very solid returns but also just in the way that it impacts our daily lives and kind of the the kind of efficiencies that we're going to gain the type of growth that we're able to gain With so much kind of negative news headlines, I think under the surface, this fourth industrial revolution and the kind of incredible growth effects that this has for the economy and consumers and businesses creates incredible potential for us all and for investors in particular. So I'm excited about it.
1: Awesome. Well said. Hallelujah. Well, Mike, thanks for your time again, and, and we'll have you back sometime.
3: Rusty, it was good to be with you today, and I look forward to chatting with
1: you again soon. Great. Thanks.
0: Pretty good stuff. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final thoughts.
1: Stay balanced and stay the course.
0: We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening to CLS is the Weighing Machine, and thank you for your time and trust in CLS Investments. CLS is the Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Officer at CLS Investments, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have questions or feedback about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty.vaneman at clsinvest.com.